Good morning, everybody. Would you, for the next nine weeks, open up to the book of James? Some of you are like, nine weeks? We're going to dive into the book of James and we are going to take our time to savor it. Um, I'm not a savoring person. My dad would, would describe me this way. I inhale my food. Uh, we're not going to inhale. Sounds weird to say that that way. The book of James, we're going to savor the book of James. And uh, I'm just stoked about what God is going to do through uh, this study for the, really for the next couple months. Um, mark your calendars, December the 22nd. Now normally we don't do a Christmas uh, Eve service at K-First. We, we never do. We always do a Christmas candlelight service the Sunday prior to Christmas. But this year, the Sunday prior to Christmas is Christmas Eve. It's actually on a Sunday, and so we are going to switch things up. So December 22nd is going to be our annual Christmas candlelight service, and I need your prayers to pray away blizzards like we got last year. First time in 14 years having to cancel Christmas candlelight service, and my like, heart is broke. It's my favorite service out of the entire year. And we just packed the place out. We have candles in everybody's hand that can hold a candle. We have electronic candles in little one's hands because we don't... Let's just say it, we don't trust them with fire. Um, it's such a fun service. So Friday night, December 22nd, mark your calendars. It is a fun, fun service to bring your friends out to. Seven o'clock. Goodness, we've got two months. Can I give a shout out, happy birthday to somebody this morning? All right, we've got four kids. Two of them are biological, one married into the family, and one is dating. I, I, I won't go very awkward, even though I just made it awkward. Uh, Claire has been dating Ethan for three and a half years. She is one of our own, uh, and she turned 20 years old today. Happy birthday, Claire. No more teenagers in the Barringer household anymore. No more. Is anybody in the house, you know what it's like to be picked last? Look, man, like a revival breaking out. This is a therapy session for all of us. I think I've been picked last so many times in my life, it's on my resume. What's your strengths? I get picked last in every game. What's your weaknesses? I get picked last in every game. Now, I will say that just was my MO growing up. And uh, it's just something about when you are always the smallest on the playground, the youngest on the playground, it's just, it just goes with the territory. That's my sad song. I mean, first day of kindergarten, I came home weeping because all of the kids called me shrimp. I know. It's like, like a little hobbit. And, and nobody just, nobody ever picked me for anything. I was always stuck with a team. It's like they're picking them. All of a sudden, there's me standing against the fence. They're like, all right, Behringer's on my team. I'm like, how awesome is that to have that just thrust on you, like I have to have Behringer on my team. And so uh, when I went away to college, I went away with a handful of friends and all of us, except for my best friend, we were all in separate dorms. And so my best friend's a floor above me. We heard that every Tuesday that guys in our dorm would go to a specific park and play tackle football. And we're like, this is how we can meet people. And so, you know, we're in Missouri. We're 800 miles away from home. And so we show up to this park. And so the guy goes, okay, here's the two captains. I'm like, oh, that's, that's great. So I'm with my friend, who my friend, by the way, is a world-class sprinter. But that's all he can do. Literally all he can do. He cannot catch. He cannot throw. He can't do anything. He just runs fast. And so... 
they all, every, we all kind of line up, and so we got two captains, and so immediately my friend's like, I, I, I'm a sprinter. The guy's like, he's my pick. I'm like, how do you pick him over, you know everybody else, and so long story short, gets down to the last person, and at 18 years old, I'm still the last person chosen in this game, but the really cool part of the story is at the end of the game, the quarterback for the other team came limping over to me and said, you're going to be my, my first pick at the next game because I can't get hit by you any longer. I'm like, yes. <laughs> Choosing violence to turn the course of time. <sighs> I'm a little intense when it comes to playing sports. Now, when it comes to people, we know about picking last, but how many of you know we don't just pick people last, but we pick subjects last? Like, I hear from people, uh, like, hey, have you talked to your spouse about this? Oh, whoa, 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 no, 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 I would never bring up that subject with him. I would never bring up that subject with my wife. I would never bring up that subject with my spouse. I'll have young people talk to me, hey, have you talked with your parents about this? I would never break this subject to talk with my parents about. I would never bring this up. Uh, whenever we travel to churches, I get questions coming to me. I'm like, you know, you could ask your pastor about this subject. I would never ask my pastor about this. I'm like, but let him pastor you. That would be awkward. I'll just ask you. I'm like, okay. So we have subjects that we pick last, and even as preachers, We've got favorite subjects we all love to preach on. For example, at 2 o'clock this afternoon, I'm preaching in our Hispanic congregation. I'm stoked about it. And so Pastor Juan's like, uh, I'm like, what do you want me to preach? And he goes, would you preach on the Holy Spirit and revival? I'm like, that's a sexy topic. I could preach on that. That's an attractive topic. I, maybe I should use better terminology. But that's a fun topic. I, I love when people ask me to preach on marriage or mental health or just preach out of the Gospels. I love preaching out of the Gospels. Um, but there are topics that us pastors have last on our list to preach about. And today is that topic. But it's not my fault. It's James' fault. Because when you're preaching through a book of the Bible, you can't avoid the subjects and dance around them. And today's topic, today's subject, it's all James' fault. It's the sub subject of, wait for it, because it's so exciting, persecution. I've got three people that are excited to die for Jesus. Everybody else is like, this will be the last time we visit this church. I've met a handful of guests. I promise you, I do not preach on persecution every week. In fact, I'm just going to be honest, 26 years of preaching, I don't know how many times I've had an entire message just on persecution. How exciting is today going to be? But I promise you it's going to be so good because when we talk about Christianity and we talk about following Jesus, you really cannot skirt around it because the reality is is if we're going to serve Jesus that we're going to face opposition. And so when we talk about the book of James, we have to, you have to really blame him because this is the context of the entire book, of, of this entire book of the Bible. So the question comes up, why did James write this? But then you got to ask the question, really, who is James? And in the, in the New Testament, there are four Jameses, James, Jameses, whatever the plural of James is. <laughs> did not mean that. That's an amazing dad joke right there. Uh, but there's four. Uh, Acts, we see that there is James, who is the father of Judas Thaddeus, or we just sometimes call him Thaddeus. This is not the author. Um, Thaddeus was one of the 12 that followed Jesus. Then there are two James that followed Jesus. There was James the Greater, or Big James, if you watch The Chosen. And he was James, the son of Zebedee. Then you've got little James, or James the Less. I mean, I feel like I was Dave the Less. I always chose the last. We've got James the Less, who was the son of Althea. And so then you come to a fourth James. And this James is very particular because it is James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
Anybody else have a sibling that act like, there's, that, like they are God's gift to humanity? You got, everybody got a sibling like that? Well, James had a sibling who was literally God's gift to humanity. And if you look into the scriptures, John, uh, John, I think it's John chapter 7, I think it's Mark chapter 3, it actually tells us a little tidbit about Jesus' upbringing, specifically how his family viewed him. And it wasn't his mother that had a problem putting her faith in him. It was his siblings that looked at their brother and... And who knows what it was that really stirred them. I mean, they saw him grow up for 30 years. They saw him through all the awkward middle school years. They saw him through the high school years, so to speak. They saw his life becoming an adult. They knew him as a child. And all of a sudden, they're beginning to hear, hey, do you realize what your brother just said? Do you realize what he said at the synagogue? Do you realize the miracles that are coming from his hands? Do you understand the type of following he has? Do you understand what the Romans are saying about him? And the pressure that was, must have been on those siblings... To understand what their brother is doing and what he is up to. And the scripture tells us they had a hard time believing in him. I mean, if it, James, I think, is proof, is one of the greatest proofs that Jesus was who he says he is. Because if your brother is going to believe in you, that's going to say a lot. And the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus, post-resurrection, appeared to James. He appears to his brother. Out of all the people he would appear to, he appeared to numbers of groups of people, to a few people, to a handful of people here and there. But he specifically, according to 1 Corinthians 15, he, he appears to his brother. And his brother has such a radical transformation in his life that no longer was he going to ignore my half-brother who says he's the Messiah. He truly believes that Jesus is the Messiah and he decides to not just follow him with his faith, but he ends up becoming one of the greatest pillars in the Christian faith of that day. He becomes the leader for the main church there in Jerusalem. And he's not just serving, he is standing up for in his faith. Acts chapter 15 tells us that he stood before the Jerusalem council and spoke to the Jerusalem council. He had a boldness. Why? Because he discovered Jesus. And it's, it's out of this spirit that he then begins to pen this letter. And he says in uh, James chapter 1 verses 1, this is the letter from James. Look what it says. A slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop right there. Some translations say servant. I love that it doesn't say, he doesn't write that I am a servant to God and to my half-brother Jesus. He proclaims himself not as a half-brother, but how every single one of us should see our lives. We are servants of Jesus. And he says, I am writing to the 12 tribes, tribes Jewish believers scattered abroad Greetings. That is all as far as we're getting at today. James 1 1. Why is this so important? Because this sets the pace for the entirety of the book. Because James tells us that this word, this letter, this epistle is written not just to a couple people, but it's written to a church that has been scattered. What has scattered them? It has been persecution. The pressure, the attack, the, uh, the, the type of, of threats 
the imprisonment, the deaths that have taken place as a result of people from the culture around them, the Romans that are attacking them. They've got Jews that are attacking them that are stirring things up. And they find themselves no longer being able to meet as one large group and they scatter over the known world. In fact, we read about this, it begins to scatter back in Acts chapter 7, then in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 7, we have the very first martyr of the New Testament and his name is... Stephen, the right side. You guys got Stephen this morning. Left side, we're going to wake up. You had an extra hour of sleep left side. But Stephen gets stoned. He is killed. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says that the church was scattered. This is what we call the dispersion. They were distributed, so to speak. Scattered throughout the known world. But it's something that I think that's very, very interesting about persecution because the enemy would love to use persecution to kill the church but something you're going to understand if you ever read the history ever read fox's book of martyrs it's an amazing book you're going to understand that every time the enemy puts pressure on the church it disperses the gospel in places he never wanted it to go but we are told from the beginning that when it comes to christianity persecution is inevitable for it it's inevitable nobody likes to amen that Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Three amens. Second Corinthians 12.10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus says, Matthew 24.9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and you put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Isn't that a great like scripture to put on a magnet and put on your fridge? You got company coming over, I mean, and you've gone to Hobby Lobby, and my guess is they don't have this scripture up on their barn wood for you to put up. You have faith, hope, and love on one wall. The next wall you've got, they're going to put you to death, and you'll be hated by the nations for my name's sake, and then your company never comes back over ever again. This is not stuff that we just... We glamorize, but we have to really recognize that these are hard subjects to talk about. Don't you know that in Scripture, there's hard stuff to talk about, but this is stuff that we have to digest. We have to have conversations about because this is real Christianity. Persecution defined is this. It's hostility, ill-treatment, and opposition because of your religious beliefs. Hostility, ill-treatment, Oppression because of your religious beliefs. Now, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, pray for me. I've been persecuted. Okay, what was your persecution? I posted a scripture and somebody wrote a nasty thing underneath my Facebook posts. That's not persecution. All right, back in the 80s, we came up with these things called tracks. Remember gospel tracks? They, they have little gospel messages on them and you walk, them and you, you walk up and you hand them to strangers and you walk away like, yes, I got them. And I still get them to this day. No joke. A few times a year, people will walk up to me and, and hand me a track and they want me to be saved. I'm like, what about me? It looks like I'm not serving Jesus, but apparently there's an air about me. And I remember in the day, they, they came out these tracks that would look like a folded $50 bill. And people would leave that on a table instead of a tip. And waitresses or waiters would open it up and say, you were looking for a tip, but let me give you a tip. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And let me tell you this. People would get mad, throw them down. Pastor, went through some persecution. They didn't like my gospel track. I'm like, no, you were a jerk. 
If you get opposition because you were a jerk or stingy in that way, that's not persecution. But I want to understand something, that persecution, legit persecution, takes place every single day. Let me give you a few stats here. That every day, 13 Christians are killed worldwide because of their faith. That's one person loses their life for their faith in 1.8 hours every single day. Every day, 12 churches uh, or buildings, Christian buildings, are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested in prison and another five are abducted. One in five Christians worldwide face persecution. This includes one in five believers in Africa and two out of five in Asia. And in fact, we now have documented there has been persecution on every continent on this earth. I found out from a missionary, I think I shared this before, I found out from a missionary friend that they knew of a guy that was stationed in Antarctica and decided to build a chapel so that Christians, when they're stationed there, they have a place to gather, they have a place to worship. But there was somebody that was stationed there that didn't like the fact that there was a gathering place, there was a church on that continent, so they went and burned the place down to keep Christians from meeting together. I'm here to say persecution, it literally happens everywhere. And just because it happens frequently in other countries, in other continents, in other places, doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, then the question is, how will we know how to recognize it or handle it when it comes our way? Because we cannot have a Christianity that services our comfort. And believe me, I like comfortable things. Those, these chairs, aren't these chairs comfortable? Some of you show me because you go to sleep on Sundays and I see it from up here. They're comfortable. I mean, we like dressing comfortable. I love dressing comfortable for preaching. I love that you come very comfortable. I, I love that we have atmospheres that I believe are comfortable and conducive to worship. That we want you comfortable enough that during worship you want to come down to the front and worship. You want to come down and pray. I love having that type of comfort. But I'm afraid that sometimes in the American church that we, in, in, instead of looking for comfort to aid something, we look for comfort to serve. Pastor, I want a service that makes me more comfortable. Pastor, I want a message that makes me more comfortable. I want songs that make me feel more comfortable. But here's the problem with comfort. If comfort is what you serve, then the removal of comfort will be the depth of your convictions. If comfort is what we are after, I'm just going to tell you people, this is the wrong church for you, and I hope you never find that church. Because this comfort is... If that's what we're serving, if that's what we're after, then that will always be the depth to our faith. And that's why I want to give us a greater understanding of this issue of persecution. And so if you would, would you, if you have your Bibles, would you go over to Daniel chapter 3, the book of Daniel. Of all of the persecution-esque stories, I thought, man, I could have gone into anything but I found myself in Daniel chapter 3. It's one of my favorite stories in all of the scripture. This is a great Sunday school story. But especially for us adults, I think there's a lot of depth here that I don't want to miss out on. Let me give you the context of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, Israel has been invaded by Babylon. Babylon has then not just invaded Israel, defeated Israel, but they have taken their best, their brightest, and their youngest, and they have removed them. Why? Because that's what you call a slow death to a nation. How do you destroy a nation slowly and painfully? It's not that you just kill them all off. Let's go after their next generation. Let's take their youngest. Let's take their brightest. Let's take the next level. So that in a generation or two, when those older generations die off, there's nobody to succeed them and the place is gone. And so Babylon has taken that next gen. 
brought them into their homes, into their land, and begin to inflict them with their culture, begin to infiltrate their minds, their hearts, their lives, their identities with their culture, saying, you used to serve one God. You used to be known as one people. Now you're going to serve what we tell you to serve, to eat what we tell you to eat, and to do what we tell you to do, because you're going to become one of us. And so we're going to look at three of those young people. And, all, and everybody here, you all know their names. Say them with me. Ananiah. Wait, some of y'all just used the wrong name. Hananiah is the name of one. Hananiah's name means God is gracious. Mishael was number two, whose name means who is like our God, and Ezariah means God helps us. These are three Hebrew young men taken out of Babylon, but y'all jump back into Sunday school because you know them by their Babylonian names. Because these men came in as standouts amongst the nation. And they brought them in and literally wanted to take their identities and switch them around. And so they gave, gave the names of Shadrach, which means moon god. Meshach, which means who is as Aku is. Aku was the moon god. And, and, and Abednego, his name means servant of Nebo, which, means, which was the god of wisdom of Babylon. And so they switched out God's names and gave them idol names. And their names may have changed. Their identities as people knew them by may have changed. But they were offered foods they, re they, they rejected. They were offered opportunities to worship they rejected. And then when they were told that they were to bow their knees in prayer and adoration toward false gods, they rejected it. Which brings us to Daniel chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. It says, Therefore, after that time, uh, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared, King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tri what's a trigon for Pete's sake, harp, bagpipe, are they Scottish there? And every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews, I love how they're painting, there's just certain Jews that you've appointed over the affairs and the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Immediately, accusations are raised against. This is where the devil starts. We read about that in Revelation chapter 12, where scripture calls him, he is the accuser of the brothers. This is what the enemy does. He accuses to bring pressure. And that's exactly what persecution does. If you're a note-taker, would you write this down? Persecution desires to steal your voice. First and foremost, persecution desires to steal your voice. It comes in to pressure you to do what you are not committed to do. To sway you away from the standards that God gives you. How many of you know that there are standards that the Word gives us that we ought to live by? Lord, have mercy. we got to wake up. There are times that God generally gives us standards that we ought to live by. And there are times that God gives us specifically things to live by. Because I can look at the scripture and I can know that generally, we call it general revelation and specific revelation or special revelation. There is general revelation that God calls us all to abide by. And there are times that the Holy Spirit puts something in our hearts that simply says that other people can do it. You're not going to do that. Why? Because he's setting up a standard and a level to live within your life. Why the Holy Spirit does that with some and not with others, I don't know. There are things that you might have the freedom to do that the Holy Spirit has told me that I shouldn't do. Does it make me better? It just tells me that's what the Spirit 
Spirit of God is speaking. And what persecution and pressure for the enemy will love for you to do is to lay down both the general and the specific, to walk the line in the way they want you to walk. To sway you away from the standards God has given you. Why? Because if you can stop living for the Lord, it will silence your voice because what comes out of your mouth will not match your life. Chapter 3, verse uh, 13 through 15. Nebuchadnezzar, furious with rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the music, fall down and worship the image I've made, it'll be well and good. But if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? In other words, here's my ultimatum. Toe the line, blend in, stay quiet, and I will leave you alone. What does persecution want to do? It wants to steal your voice. Listen, understand something. That everybody, it seems like in this day and age, is allowed to have a voice. Except one group. We have given a place at every microphone for every voice, no matter what their stance is, no matter what their focus is, no matter what their, their, their decisions are. We will give anybody and everybody a voice. But I'm, I'm here to say that when it comes to voicing that which is something that exalts Christ, that exalts who he is, that lifts him up, we are the ones that are told to be silent. I'm not trying to create a boo-hoo thing toward the church or toward Christianity, but this is just the reality of what we see nowadays. Voices are offered microphones, but when it comes to the voice of the church and the voice of the Father, that we can either be silent or we can continue to speak up. And we can continue to be a voice and a word in the wilderness pointing toward people that there is a way, there is a truth and a life, and His name is Jesus. And we've got to be willing to have a voice, but there is pressure. There's pressure that comes from every which way that simply says, fine, serve Jesus, but don't speak about it. He wants to steal your voice. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, King, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words... Do what you want to do. Guess what? God can save us now or he can save us in heaven. Either way, we won't bow our knees. Now I want you to understand something. That when persecution shows up, it doesn't have to steal your voice. It needs to deepen your conviction. This is why you can't serve Jesus just on Sundays. This is why the faith of your life and the way your faith is fed, it can't happen from Pastor Dave's messages on Sundays. If you're only eating 52 days out of the year, you are cheating yourself. When are you deepening your faith? Where are you growing your faith? Don't just deepen it on Sunday. Deepen it every day. Spend time in prayer. Get yourself into the Word. Get yourself some worship times. Be in a place where you can get into community with one another. That's why I love tables of people gathering together to encourage each other, to cheer each other on, to help each other out, to breathe life in everybody. Why? Because we cannot depend upon a Sunday morning message to fuel our faith. We've got to be people that grow our faith day in and day out so that when persecution ends, our voices don't go away, but they actually come up out of the depth of our conviction. 
Number two, because if persecution doesn't steal your faith, it will want to kill your spirit. Persecution, if it doesn't steal your faith, it'll want to kill your spirit. Nebuchadnezzar absolutely loses it. Why? Because when the king threatens, everybody bows to a threat. But that's what makes a believer different. It's because our trust is not in what people can do, but our trust is in what Jesus can do. Daniel 3, 19-20. Nebuchadnezzar, filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it's usually heated. Can you sense the desperation here? Now, let me just tell you. If the furnace is hot enough to burn up everything, what use is it burning up, like burning seven times hotter? This is how desperate he is. And he ordered that some of the mighty men of his army bind these men and cast them into the fiery furnace. You see, persecution doesn't come just to impact you. Persecution wants to consume you. It wants to consume you. It wants to consume and kill your spirit. It wants to destroy your passion. The threat of what, this is what you're going to do if you continue to be bold. If you continue to walk in strength. If you continue to walk in passion. If you continue, then I'm going to do something that's going to kill your spirit. That's going to take your passion away. And so often I've seen people say, Pastor, I feel like I'm going underneath persecution. Maybe I need to quiet down a little bit. But I'm here to say that when the pressure of persecution comes our way, that's not the time for us to put on the brake. That's the time to put on the accelerator to our faith. So when pressure comes, when you're feeling the pressure, I'm here to say, apply pressure right back. Apply more prayer. Apply more fasting. Apply more worship. Apply more truth. Begin to lean into the presence of God because the scripture says the enemy comes in like a flood, but God sets up a standard. And I'm here to say that you may think that that Pressure is there to destroy you. I'm here to say this. You may see a furnace. God sees it as a forge. The furnace is where everything gets, gets burnt up. But a forge is where a substance is put in to become stronger. Some of y'all will never know a fire walking Jesus until you go through the fire. You will never know a a water walking Jesus until you're in deep places and in storms. Some of you will never know Red Sea split until you are put between a place where where are we going to go and we've got an enemy coming back. And I'm here to say, am I asking you, God, send me persecution. I'm not asking you to send out that prayer. I'm not praying that prayer. But at the same time, I'm like, Lord, whatever comes my way, I know you are with me. I know you go before me. I know you'll come in behind me. I know you'll hem me on all the sides around me. And no matter where I go, your presence is with me. And when the pressure comes in, and when the enemy steps in, I don't have to live in fear. Because I've got a Jesus that, knocks, that brings down walls that once stood before. That when I go through the waters, I mean, what is it? Ezekiel chapter 43 says, when I go through the waters, you are there, and I'm not overwhelmed. And when I go through the fires, you are there. And it's something that these three Hebrew boys experience is that when they went into the hottest of the hot furnaces that everybody else might be consumed but they stood strong and they walked through without any problem at all that's why it's good to take a stand for Christ one, you know one of the greatest stands for Jesus that you could ever take and this has been proven worldwide is baptism 
Some of us in the American church, we take for granted what we're going to do in two weeks is baptize. I have so many missionary friends that are just literally scattered around the world and we have conversations. And baptism is really two things. Number one, it's the litmus test for believers. What do I mean? Because I've got friends that are located in places that I cannot say because this is, being, uh, this is online and I can't give the locations. But they'll say that they will have people from the state, people from the country that will try to infiltrate the church. And the way that people prove that they're believers is they get baptized. Because once you publicly go into water, your life is marked forever. And so if people aren't baptized, that they don't necessarily trust them until they go down into that water and they go through that beautiful ceremony, which we believe is the badge of the believer. I've got friends that will say that they will lead people to Jesus and they will go and do this public setting where they will baptize people in water. And all their friends and their family will come and to watch because they want to see if this is a real thing. And we think that that's a, a beautiful moment, but actually it's the opposite. Because when they come up out of the water, that's where the friends say, now we've lost them. And the friends and the family depart from them and they have nobody except their now new family in Christ. See, some of you when you see, when you see the baptismal tank in two weeks, that's not a body of water, it's a forge of fire. When a life goes down into the water, we are buried with Jesus in his death. And when we come up out of the water, we are resurrected with him. So when we see people going into the water, I see it as a forge because it says, I am choosing to be identified with Jesus. It was the old song we used to say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Some of y'all have never been baptized. You need to sign up after the service. We want to put you into the forge in two weeks. That's, if out of context, that would be a really weird statement to hear. But we want to see you take that step of faith that simply says, before God and before this world, I have chosen, chosen to follow Jesus with my life. It's a tank of water to some. I think it's the forge of faith to others. You want to take your faith seriously? Be baptized. You see, when you go through the fire, I want you to understand something. The enemy is not looking for injury. He's looking for fatality. Daniel chapter 3, verse 24. The king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? Answered, they said, king, true king, uh, that's true king, he answered, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out. Come here. And the men came out of the fire. I want you to understand something. When we see persecution, yes, it wants to silence your voice. It wants to kill your spirit. But I'm here to say that when we go through persecution and the pressure, it doesn't push the presence away of God. I believe it's the great revealer of the closeness of God's divine presence. Read about it in Acts chapter 7. That when Stephen is getting stoned, which is, means something different today than it was 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, they take people out into the corner of, of a lot and just literally pick up stones and stone that person, hit that person until they were dead. And while Stephen is being martyred and persecuted, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What is so cool is this, is that every other picture of Jesus, we have them sitting at the right hand of God. But when someone is standing up for their faith, Jesus rises to his feet. Jesus stands up to his feet. The standing ovation of Jesus is over your life when you're standing up for your faith. And the presence of Jesus is so real. Which leads me to our number three. If you can't steal your voice, 
The enemy wants to steal your spirit. If he can't kill your spirit, he will want to destroy your legacy. Kathy, if you could join me up here, that way I'll shut up. Persecution, what do we mean by destroy your legacy? It wants to destroy your effectiveness. Persecution wants to keep you from perpetuating your faith. Persecution wants to keep you from passing on what you have received. Persecution, many times people will be content, well, okay, we can't stop them from following Jesus, but maybe we can stop them from doing anything for Jesus. Persecution wants to give you from, keep you from giving, from serving, from proclaiming, from loving, from forgiving. But what I love about the story of these three Hebrew men in Daniel chapter 3 is that when persecution came, it didn't end their legacy, it perpetuated it. Because it's in the middle of persecution that God brought promotion. Daniel chapter 3, 27. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. Understand, the enemy will try to tell you how much power he has over you. But it never matches the power of the Most High. It says this. They gathered together and they saw the power, it had no power over the bodies of the men, these men. Their hair of their heads was not even singed. Their cloaks were not even harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. What they went through couldn't even touch them. And what's beautiful is, they even said it before, but if it does... Have you ever sat with somebody that has that type of spirit in them? Man, I have sat in cancer wards with people that I've gone to pray with them. And I've come in all sober and just, just very quiet. How are you doing? Pastor, why do you look like that? Jesus is still alive. And Jesus can still heal me. But guess what, Pastor? If he doesn't heal me, he will ultimately heal me. And then I walk out like I was supposed to pray for them. And they prayed for me. And I'm, they blessed me. And what am I even doing in this job anymore? Because there's something about having a mentality that says, no matter what I go through, the Lord is going to be with me. And so the reputation of my life is not going to be what's happening to me. It's what's happening within me. Verse 30. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. For anybody here that you feel fearful of your future, keep standing. For anybody here that you feel fearful about laws that could change, I've heard so many threats about different laws changing for churches and Christians. And I've, I've somebody else sent me so many YouTubes. I'm just going to tell you, 95% of them I don't watch the YouTubes. But I get so much sent my way, and there's so much fear-driven. Pastor, what if this happens? Pastor, what if this happens? I'm just going to tell you this: things are going to be happen, but we are not going to be like those who shrink away. We know. Stuff is going to happen. But we are to keep standing. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are not given the armor of God so that we can just have it ready just in case. If you read about the armor of God, the armor of God is given so that we can stand. Is persecution coming your way? I can't tell you what is or how it will look and what it will look like. I can't tell you when things will happen or how things will happen, or what type of persecution is coming in your context here in Portage and Kalamazoo. Have Ann and I gone underneath some attacks? Absolutely. We've had things sent to our home, things sent to our office. We have had messages, threats, things. We've, we've seen some tastes 
But I'm here to say no matter what you've tasted or what is to come, God is always greater. And in the middle of the furnace of persecution, God does his finest work. And where persecution could be a furnace to destroy, I believe it can be a forge to strengthen. And so how do you wrap up a service like this? Do we have an altar where everybody who wants to be persecuted rush forward and, and I'm up here by myself with the prayer team. But this week as I was doing some research, I was on um, a number of sites that are about uh, martyrs and ministry and things like that. And I was telling my daughter the other day, I said, I started doing some research to make sure I have proper statistics. And then I found out that there is an international day of prayer for the persecuted church. You want to know what day it happens to be? It's the first Sunday of November every year. I looked at my daughter, is that amazing it happened that way? She goes, yes, that's what the Holy Spirit does, Dad. <laughs> Have you ever been corrected and mocked by your child at the same time? So today I thought one of the best ways that we can end today is, is to give you some prayer points to pray for the persecuted church. We're going to put those up on the screen. If you don't have these, if you want to take a picture, great. If you have the, the Church Center app, that's the best way to have it. So you could have that throughout the week. But could we dedicate ourselves to pray for the persecuted church this week? How do we pray? Pray for the safety and strength of persecuted Christians worldwide. Ask God to grant them courage and resilience in the face of adversity. Pray for the governments and persecuted countries to uphold religious freedom and protect the rights of Christians and other religious minorities. Pray. Policy changes that promote tolerance and respect for diverse beliefs. Pray for the families of those who have lost loved ones due to persecution. Ask God to provide them with comfort and support during their times of grief. Pray for the hearts of those who perpetrate violence and discrimination against Christians. Ask God to bring transformation and change uh, their hearts toward love and understanding. Pray for the spirit of unity amongst Christians worldwide to stand in support of their perse persecuted brethren. Pray for increased awareness and the advocacy efforts to address Christian persecution and protect rights, religious right, uh, freedoms for all. This comes directly from a, a site that battles and challenges people for the sake of martyrs. It's called Voice of the Martyrs. It's a fantastic site. I've had friends that have done mission trips with Voice of the Martyrs to help send things out to the underground church. And if there's anything that we can do this week, how do we really get challenged today is number one, it should challenge our faith. Where are we standing with Jesus? And number two, I think it should challenge us to pray for the persecuted church. And that's how we're going to wrap up today's service. Is we're just going to pray. Would you stand with me? Could we just have a few moments to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around this world. One in 13 Christians have, will have lost their life, I should say, 13 Christians will have lost their life in the 24 hours of November chapter 5. And in fact, in the time for our service to begin and conclude, stats will tell us that somebody has lost their life due to their faith. This is not something that we can just skirt by and think that it will never touch us in Portage and Kalamazoo. Persecution is there. And the body of Christ has got to go past 5550 Oakland Drive. We are united across the pond to other Christians that are following Jesus, serving, serving Jesus, propelling the kingdom of God into the areas of the world that we will never even see, know, or hear about. And they need our prayers. In the day and age of Moses, 
while there was a battle going on, Scripture says he got tired and his arms dropped. And when his arms dropped, Israel began to lose the battle. But then there's two men by the name of Aaron and Hur that got on either side of his arms, gave him a place to sit down and held his arms up until the battle was won. You know what we get to be for the persecuted church? We get to be Aaron and Hur. And we're going to hold up their arms today. Could we just pray today? If, if, if you're comfortable enough, would you just lift up your hands like you're holding up the hands of those that are just going through the fire this morning. We don't know where people are at all around this globe, where they're meeting, some places where people are hiding out with just scraps of, the, scraps of, of pieces of the Scripture because they don't have a whole Bible. People wondering if anybody's going to knock on their door. Could we just begin to pray for the persecuted church? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are not limited to a location here in the corner of I-94 in Oakland, but you transcend across cities, states, nation over oceans. In fact, the psalmist says, where can we go away from your presence that we can go to the highest of highs or the lowest of lows? And you're there with us. And today we uphold the arms of our brothers and our sisters around this globe. Some that are living underneath immense threats because of their faith in following you. Lord, the same threat that literally scattered a church in James chapter 1, all around the known region, for which James is reaching out to encourage and to build up. And God, I pray that wherever our brothers and sisters are at, that God, that your spirit would go and encourage them. That would meet them in this place of fear, hurt, and wondering. That God, for those that are mourning today, God, your word says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For those, God, that are broken because of things that have been done to them, God, I pray that you bring healing. For those living underneath the oppression of fear, the oppression of, of control from governments and people groups, God, and, and the different, uh, different people uh, groups that are lingering over them, giving them the ultimatum, God, I pray for the spirit of these three Hebrew men to be within them. They simply will choose to follow you and to trust in you. Because we recognize that persecution wants to steal their voice. It wants to kill their spirit. And it wants to destroy their legacy. But Lord, we sit in your presence recognizing that it's Lord, you're the one that goes before us. You're the one that can make paths straight. You're the one that can heal hearts. You're the one that can open doors. You're the one that protects us. And you're the one that also comforts us in the middle of all of these moments. And God, I pray this week that you would raise us up as a remnant to speak over the persecuted church. Believing God that as much pressure as the enemy wants to put on us, God, I want him to understand that the furnace they thought would destroy us will become the forge that will refine us, that will perpetuate the kingdom of God around this globe. Why? Because your word and your will is that none should perish. And that everyone would come and to know you and everlasting life. We speak that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Can we give God a hand clap of praise in the house?